There it is, and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC. Hey, it's a brand new year. I'm sure a lot of you are making your resolutions and following through on your resolutions, which is probably why there are some brand new geeks in sneaks listening to our show right now, motivating them through a workout or a run. We're going to be with you in your ear holes for 90 plus minutes talking games because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way it's meant to be completely free. And that's thanks to our sponsors this week, Casper and Cashfly. Cashfly actually is responsible for the bandwidth and hosting for all of the shows on the 5x5 network. Cashfly is the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. We're so grateful for their support. They made these shows possible. And you can find out more about Cashfly at cashfly.com. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. Back to the show. DLC is the show all about games. In many forms, games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, that's spelled with two N's and one T, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis, the guy who has never once missed the go-ahead field goal with only seconds remaining, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello, Jeff. The world is full of opportunities when you don't take them. You will never, ever fail as long as you never, ever try. And I have never tried to kick a field goal, and I have never missed a field goal. So I'm feeling yeah, pretty good. Your record is perfect. I couldn't believe that. Just to leave it, leave that there, I could not believe it. Me neither, man. Well, crazy. All the wildcard teams uh, that were at home lost. It was a. It was all all visitors that that won. It's the first time that's ever happened in NFL history. Crazy. Crazy. Ah, but we are not a football podcast. No, we are a gaming podcast, and we have a lot of great stuff to talk about, uh, and we have a great guest to do it with. Uh, You know that DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian, but this week, oh man, I am excited because DLC stands for Developer at Lunar Classes, because we have the co-founder of Night School Studio. See what I did there? Uh, which is releasing their new adventure game, Oxen Free, this Friday. It's Mr. Sean Crankel. Thanks for being here, Sean. Thank you for having me. I thought you were going to say downloadable Crankle, but I'll take the other one. Well, it's a, it's a K, right? It's a K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very, uh, very rigorous about my abbreviations. So that's good. Um, <laughs> but we're I glad also, you're here. You have a big week. Gonna... You have a very big week. Huge week, yeah. Um, so, yeah, our game Oxen Free that we've been working on for about a year and a half is going to be launching this coming Friday uh, on Xbox, on Steam, on Windows 10, um, and also newly announced on Mac. Um, so we're very excited, very tired, very thrilled for people to finally get their hands on the game. Yeah, and you also, there was a big press release this morning. You had a big announcement as well that Oxen Free is not only going to be a video game, releasing this Friday, but you also partnered with some really cool people to make Oxen Free uh, more than that. Can you tell us a little bit about that announcement? Sure. Yeah, we've been talking to um, Robert Kirkman's company. Robert Kirkman is the creator of The Walking Dead and uh, his his kind of transmedia, for lack of a better term, God, I hate that term, but let's fi- <laughs> figure out another one for it. Uh, Imprint is called Skybound and they're incredibly um, talented and obviously have had a lot of success with um, not just The Walking Dead, but a lot of other comics that they've worked on and bringing um, these various IPs to other media. So, you know, like they've done an extraordinary job with Walking Dead in games and in TV shows and in merchandise. 
Um, and so they, we've been talking to them for quite a few months about this idea of how can we partner with them to bring Oxenfree to various other media and also kind of amplify it in the game space. So um, what we announced this morning was, yeah, the idea that now Oxenfree um, will sort of be co-branded with Skybound as a game. And then on top of that, we're developing things like um, potentially a film, potentially uh, more merchandise. And just in general, they're helping us kind of get the word out. And so it's, uh, yeah, super exciting because it's just like a really natural fit. I think our game and the world of our game, which is very creepy and weird and cool, um, fits in really well with the rest of kind of the Skybound umbrella. Um, and really looking forward to what the you know the rest of the year looks like. That's awesome. Uh, very, very exciting stuff. Uh, Christian and I had a chance to play Oxenfree early, and we'll, I want to talk about the game uh, a little bit. But I also want to talk about you personally. Like, How did you get into gaming? I understand you started at Pixar. Is that right? So I've had the – I mean, I guess everybody you talk to in games has a ridiculous uh, long story that, that led them to games, and there's not really the clearest path. Um, for me, yeah, I actually started um, – well, the first thing I was doing, I, I was from Chicago. I moved out to L.A. for an internship on an awful soap opera called Sunset Beach that oh, wow. was ridiculous. And uh, after that internship ended, I was like, okay, I'm either going to go back to school in Chicago or I want to stay in L.A. and ended up getting – um, a production coordinator job at Disney Feature Animation. So I was sort of this liaison between Pixar and the LA studio. And so for all the recording sessions for Bugs Life and for Toy Story 2 and uh, a good chunk of the Monsters, Inc. ones, I was uh, this idiot with push pins pushing up the boards and making sure that the, the sessions were going smoothly. Um, wow. I, that was for like three years. I also worked on uh, on Tarzan and their effects department for about a year. And I was kind of at this place where I loved everything that I was working on, but I also was not, um, I, I wasn't going to have a clear path into the creative side of the filmmaking industry. And so a friend of mine had uh, gone over and was working at Universal Interactive, which doesn't really exist anymore because it got all bought up by Activision. Um, but at that time, you know, this was sort of like the Crash Bandicoot, Spyro the Dragon era. Mm-hmm. And I went over there as a coordinator um, and then became a producer and a game designer in their studio and worked on a variety of things like quite a few Crash Bandicoot games and the infamous 50 Cent game, which I'd rather not talk about, <laughs> <laughs> although the sessions were super fun. Um, and then actually went back to Disney after that. I was at Universal for about six years, went back to Disney, but this time in their interactive group um, as a designer. Uh, again, kind of working on a wide myriad of things like uh, worked on Epic Mickey, worked on um, their Turok reboot for a little bit, left the game industry. Uh, this is now we're up to like 2007 or so. And um, was out of the industry for a few years and then went back to Disney again the third time, (laughs) Um, this time working on the Where's My Water franchise, which was like a a puzzle game from a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the team, most of our team is actually comprised of either ex-Telltale folks or people that I had worked with at Disney. It's so interesting because you can definitely see the DNA of all that stuff in Oxenfree. You can see Telltale DNA and you can certainly see animated feature DNA because the uh, the game really is a storytelling game. And I think more than uh, almost any other game I've played, it relies on great voiceover performances. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the idea behind making Oxenfree was and sort of what the game is? 
Absolutely. Um, and thank you for those kind words because yeah, we're super tiny studios. So we're trying to feel as like bigger than we are. (laughs) And so to hear that, uh, it had that impact is awesome. Um, yeah, the studio. So myself and my cousin are actually the co-founders. Uh, his name is Adam Hines and he, um, it's weird. Him and I had never worked together professionally. Like we've worked in the same building a few times and we made a bunch of weird VHS movies when we were kids, but like we never really worked together. But for at least, I don't know, five or six years plus, we had been trying to figure out a way to, to work together. And he, he had worked on a graphic novel that took him like a ton of time. It's called Duncan the Wonder Dog. And he worked on it, um, I think from the time he was in high school till the time he was like 26. Uh, so this massive like 700 page, home that he ended up putting out that did really well. And so he ended up, that's how he kind of made his way in at, uh, at Telltale. And so early in 2014, um, I ended up leaving Disney and him and I, it was this time where we were like, okay, we can build a really small team. We know exactly the type of game that we want to make. And, uh, maybe this is the time to do it. And so we really built out before we even started working on the story of the game, the concept was, you know, you look at one end of the spectrum of storytelling games, and you've got like the Telltale-esque games where you've got, you know, great branching narratives, but the actual interactions are um, fairly passive when you're, because you're kind of watching, you know, a television style thing play out. And that's awesome. And those guys do that great. But like we thought, okay, if we were to do one thing to add our mark to it and try to change how people interact with stories, what if there's never a cutscene? Like what if you can, it sounds maybe sort of boring, but <laughs> the idea of walking and talk. And we thought, you know, that that is a really interesting challenge that a lot of no challenge, no developers we've seen have really tackled it as then being the entirety of the experience. And so every decision we made from like, you know, where your dialogue choices pop up over your head to the fact that the camera is, you know, our camera is very pulled back. So you see these big sweeping environments, but that's to accommodate the fact that we want four or five characters on screen with them, um, to the actors that we worked with, to the art style, all that stuff really came from this idea of like moving and talking. Um, and so the story then, which came kind of in, in tandem was this idea of, you know, just what are the types of stories that we really like. And, you know, when you look at a lot of the choice-based games out there, oftentimes the choices are super serious, mortal, like somebody's going to die right now. You've got to choose, you know, and we thought, well, what if choices were a little bit more relatable? Like what if it was, you know, we kind of hit on this idea of what if it was a coming of age story that you control how the protagonist comes of age. So a lot of these, you know, conversations and things that are happening in the game hopefully are very, uh, again, relatable so that when it does get crazy, uh, then, you know, the stakes even feel higher. And so, yeah, the story that we came up with is sort of this merging of teen um, story like a Stand By Me or a Goonies, but mixed with some really scary, weird, supernatural events that turn into a, a big mystery. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. Uh, and the the experience as you describe it, the, the aesthetic of the game is, is really beautiful and it's very different. Uh, it feels, um, almost like sword and sorcery in a little bit of a way, but you know, nicer, not as pixelated, but it's got that cool pulled back aesthetic that we're seeing more in games like below kind of mm-hmm. has that idea. Um, and, and I think what it does, as you describe with, um, you know, in contrast to telltale games where you really do feel like you're playing an episode of a TV show or something. This really feels more like I'm actually hanging out with these people. I mean, this is a, a, a sort of a hanging out game in a lot of ways. And the choices that you make are really crafting the relationships that you have 
with those other characters in very small ways. And, and, and I found those actually to be more impactful and more meaningful because it's, because I actually got to put myself in that situation and say, how would I craft this conversation? How would I, what would I react to this situation with? And, you know, am I going to be sarcastic and wry or am I going to be, you know, earnest and heartfelt? I really enjoyed that feeling of actually participating in that relationship in a very grounded way, as opposed mm. to a video game way. Yeah, I think um, so. That's great to hear because, and, and the further you get into the game, I think that the stakes and the scenarios will get much weirder and much more um, kind of frightening. And that, you know, it's not to say that that sense of mortality that I was talking about before doesn't come into play, but it was super key for us to have kind of this juxtaposition of the opening moments of the game feeling, like you said, sort of smaller, natural things like, okay, somebody offers you a cigarette, do you take it or not? Like that's right. a lame, that's a lame thing, you know, for a game, if you would build an entire game around that, but it's like, Oh, you know, your new stepbrother, he's, you sort of need to define your new stepbrother to one of your old friends. Do you talk about him? Like he's just a new roommate. Do you talk about him like he's just a guy? Do you talk about him as somebody that you're welcoming with open arms? And so those moments really do start to craft the underlying relationships so that, you know, by the, by the first, by the time act one is done. And by the time these kids are dealing with some super crazy stuff, ideally the relationships do feel natural and real. You know, like we looked at, um, uh, Chronicle a lot tonally, like mm-hmm. that movie Chronicle. I don't know if you guys have seen Chronicle. Sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, that concept of like the first, whatever third of it just feels like, jackass mixed with a bunch of kids or whatever, just kind of hanging out. And so when superpowers come in, it just feels infinitely more, um, real, I guess, or just, I don't know, kind of moving. And so that's what we were trying to do with this as well is really, um, have some very real relationships and then pull and tug at them with these supernatural events in the game. Yeah. And when the supernatural stuff does happen, it's pretty cool how it starts to creep into the world and that feeling of like, do I want to go there? Do I want (laughs) to, let's all go and investigate that thing. Eh, Maybe I don't want to. Uh, It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Christian, you have anything else you want to throw in or should we jump to the rest of the show? I want to talk more about this game during our uh, playlist section because it's what I've been playing most. But um, do you have anything, Christian? Oh, yeah, I think these are pre-playlists. These are just kind of general um, questions that can be... Uh, we'll see how deep they go. Um, two two questions. One, I've given Telltale a hard time for this, and I'm curious how you guys thought about addressing it. And from what I've played, the problem's still there a little bit. And it's, mm-hmm. it's the sense that when people talk, especially teens... I spend so much time with teens. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a lot of... The, the pace of the conversation seems quicker than what's able to be portrayed in these decision-style games. In this game, because you said it's not a cutscene, it is walking and talking or hanging out or whatever, it seems a little more natural, but I also I got the impression that it wasn't quite the flow of a conversation as you would watch in Goonies or something like that, where there's yelling and running and talking in this. And of course, the focus and the director is able to pull you on chunk talking, so now you're focusing on him despite someone else yelling in the background. Mm-hmm. Um so how did you come to terms with the idea that this is a very naturalistic approach? You know, you have great voice actors talking. Was that something that was a challenge for you guys at all? The pace of the conversation where I need to have time to decide what I'm going to do. But at the same time, I'm sitting here engaged with these characters. And how do you make it feel real while still having it be me controlling the protagonist? Yes. Yeah, so there was, it, that was probably um, the 
number one challenge that we didn't realize how crazy it would become uh, because what we ended up doing is building a system that um, really like, so there's a few things. One, we never wanted to let the, uh, to have the protagonist be communicating without the player providing input. So most of these other games that we've ever seen, there is always a kind of breaking of the fourth wall because the char- the protagonist will talk without you, you know, they'll either talk, they'll, they'll talk about an object in the environment or you'll make a dialogue choice. And then there will be some banter that goes back and forth. And you have just sort of initiated that banter. And in our case, we said, we never want our character to talk unless you make her talk. So you can even play through this game, which is very awkward, but there is even an achievement for it where you could not talk the whole time and the characters need to, and will respond to that. They'll just be like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you being so weird? Um, so, so I think one, that was one big challenge that we set up front. Like we want to make sure that the player is always the one initiating that. And so that means that, yeah, when you make a dialogue choice, you can cut off other people while they're talking. And that was another big challenge. Like how do you, how do you cut off an NPC and not have it wait for them to talk, but rather sort of step on their words um, and make that feel naturalistic. So there was a lot of a challenge in sort of the timing there where it would be like, okay, let's make the other NPC keep talking for another second so that it does feel like they're getting cut off or, you know, things like that. And so there's a lot of tweaking sort of that went into that as well. Um, The other thing that became a giant challenge was because the player, because the player has constant control spatially over where they are, um, that also makes it interesting. And so like the, the upside to that for us was we could do these really interesting kind of like Wes Anderson style cutaways where one person might be in a house and the other one, you're both on the same screen. So the player can see both of you, but one person can be observing one thing. Another one can be sort of up in the woods. The challenge with that was, okay, these characters need to acknowledge each other spatially. So there's huge dialogue trees that just even acknowledge that where like on that beach scene, for example, it's pretty early on when they're playing that game of truth or slap. Uh, <laughs> if you're in the middle of that game and you just start to walk away, they, we want them to acknowledge you. And they're like, okay, where are you going? Quit being weird. And we're not going to play until you come back. And then if you keep walking, they'll be like, all right, we'll finish the game without you. And so that really ballooned, I think the script and uh, again, Adam <laughs> who wrote it is probably like, dreading some of the decisions we made early on because the script is over 12,000 lines. Um, wow. So it's, yeah, it's just like bonkers huge. Um, the other thing, sorry, one last thing to answer, just sort of like the naturalistic aspect of it. We found that the, even though actors want to read at a certain pace um, in general, and this is something that I was, I felt fortunate enough to kind of watch happen at Disney during those recording sessions on those other movies. It's like, they get the actors to talk almost at twice their normal speed because in animation, that's just what feels right and appropriate. And so all Hmm. of our characters, um, we really, it's not like, like when you hear them talking in the game, they don't, uh, you know, I hope it feels very naturalistic, but when you have the actors in the booth talking about it, I think it's a little uncomfortable for them at first because in animation, it just reads better when they're going at double speed. So, um, yeah, it's definitely like, you know, as you mentioned, it's a pain point in all of these types of games, but for us, we, you know, wanted to attack that basically as our core design challenge. And I think we were pretty effective with it. Yeah, and this this is related. the the last The third question. I'll wait till we get into it a little bit. But how did you guys, you know, when you're sitting down designing the game, deal with the the idea that the player has so much more information than the character in the game? So when I get to a decision tree, it's do X, do Y, tell X, tell Y, tell Z. I see all of that. Uh, Jonas, who I'm talking to, only hears tell X. So now going forward, my decisions as the player are influenced perhaps by 
you know, in 1984, I ate crab and didn't like it or whatever. <laughs> dumb, not in the game, dumb example. But you know that. So that influences how you pick things going forward, perhaps. But Jonas or your character, if you're putting yourself into Alex's shoes or whomever, doesn't hadn't said that. Was that an yeah. issue for you guys at all or just kind of something that uh, flavors the conversation later? So the choice is fortunately, um, I mean, the way we decided to attack it was let's make the player feel, uh, you know, in as many cases as possible, let's make the player feel like they have just as much information as um, as Alex would. And so that, again, was a pretty big design challenge, especially just even spatially looking at these characters, like making sure that the player doesn't see something scary or weird or dreadful that the player or that, that Alex, uh, you know, wouldn't see also. So that became a pretty big challenge. And so I think the dialogue choices, you know, the way that we approached the actual choices themselves as they appear was really just to feel more like, um, what would you as the player hopefully want to say at that moment? And that those choices are not full of information about the game or about the narrative or about anything that's coming soon. Um, and so that comes, you know, all those decisions that w- one of the biggest decisions we made that guides back to that is the choice of Jonas as a character, why we made Jonas sort of the character you spend all your time with. And, um, you know, just some backstory in the game, you play as this girl, Alex, who it's her first uh, night meeting her new stepbrother, this guy, Jonas, and uh, your parents are remarrying and um, you, Alex, your your biological brother passed away a couple years earlier from an incident that you carry some, you know, sort of guilt around that. And early versions of the game, we were like, okay, we're going to have them, you know, be doing this memorial for for Michael, who's her dead brother. And like, we're going to do all these things. And we're like, you know what? The player is not going to have any of those feelings. The player is not going to care at all, right? Like you can't build in the last two years of all these awful feelings that she's had. And so instead we went, okay, let's make as many of the setup, as much of the setup as, you know, like again, benign and new as possible. And Jonas, this person that you're spending all your time with is just as new to you as he is to, to Alex. Um, so yeah, that is definitely, a huge challenge in not feeding the player information or trying to make them feel a certain thing about past events that, you know, Alex wouldn't already feel because you, it's just as new to you as it is to everybody else. That was one of the, my favorite things is, is a dialogue option would reveal something to me that I liked how subtle the reveals were, mm. that it wasn't like, here's the story up till now. It was these characters already living in this world where stuff has happened. And I'm sort of discovering it as I, participate in the conversation which was which was pretty neat if only there were some way sorry if only there was some way jeff for to even further live in a world like with the headset hey oh and like a a a thing that you strapped into and walked on and um yeah and skates uh, that had rockets shooting out of them (laughs) i guess you're saying we should get into the rest of the show (laughs) no i'm not at all i'm just saying uh I'm, uh, I'm we sure will we will talk more oxen free during the during the playlist. But let's uh, let's start the show proper, and uh, Sean's going to stick with us and talk about all the cool stories of the week in our segment story of the week. Story of the week. It's the story of the week. Story of the week. It's the story of the week. Story of the week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. Big week with CES and uh, some pre-orders you may have heard about. Sean, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. What, uh, for your money, is is the most important story of the week? Let's talk about the Oxenfree Rift. 
<laughs> I would love to talk. No, the rift. We got to talk about the rift. It's, it's uh, the biggest one of all and the most interesting and the most divisive, I think. So let me ask you right off the top. Did you pre-order one? I did not. I have friends did you want who to? did. Uh, I did. I God, the price point is killing me. Like mm-hmm. I'm super interested in it. I haven't used the final dev kit, so I don't really know how far it came. I do absolutely agree that it is going to be um, a game changer for the industry, but I also feel like that price point is just like terrifying. Well, so if you were uh, living under a rock the last week and and unable to check gaming news sites, the Oculus Rift went on pre-order uh, up until the moment that the pre-orders became live. No one knew what that price point was going to be. There was a lot of speculation. A lot of things said, oh my goodness, it's going to be more expensive than you thought. I'm not sure anybody expected $599, specifically because the dev kits up to this point had been in the 300 to 350 range. So $599 is the price point. Uh, it comes with an Xbox One controller and a wireless adapter for PC. It comes with a carrying case, but it does not come with the Oculus Touch controllers, which will be rolled out, I guess, halfway through the year, and I'm sure will not be cheap in and of themselves. Pre-order, uh, those who pre-ordered will get uh, evidently their space reserved in line to buy the Touch controllers. I did buy it. Um, it was definitely some sticker shock happening when I, I I was sitting there in my hotel room in Vegas, refreshing and refreshing and waiting for that that moment to happen. And when I saw five ninety nine come up, I was very shocked. You're like, "Dup, beyond a roulette, be back in a minute, Daddy." Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta win some money. Um, Christian, yeah, I'm allowing you this forum to gloat and or make fun of me, uh, whatever you intend to do. Uh, what is your reaction to this? No, I mean, when the, when the price came up, I mean, I, I'm assuming yours was too, but my Twitter feed was just blowing up. And I think people are expecting like, this is the, the cage match, you know, the, the chain link fence is being dropped down. It's Kanata versus Spicer. This is, <laughs> this is it. Um, you know, it's super expensive and I'm glad you're buying one. I'm not, um, it, it, it's, uh, this isn't the thing that makes VR mainstream. It's too expensive. It's a chicken and the egg or cart and horse thing where like what developer wants to develop exclusively for a peripheral that costs $600 that then requires a $1,500 or more machine to play it. You know what, how many of these things are going to be sold into the world? And then if no one's making great software for it, how do you justify the price? And if you don't have enough people, buying them how do you lower the price until components become more widely available and you are going to love it and people that buy it are going to find ways to love it and justify their $600 i don't think anyone will have buyer's remorse so to speak because if you're spending $600 on a pc peripheral you are either very bad with your money and don't care that you're wasting it or you have the uh income to justify said purchases but you know to think that we're now in the beginning of the vr age because of this thing coming out it's it's ridiculous right this is a first gen tech of something that is going to be replaced in two to three years i don't buy apple products first gen i don't you don't you don't do stuff like that if you are a normal consumer if you want to be on the bleeding edge of technology you buy that you buy laser disc you bought hg hg hd dvd you bought blu-ray you bought you bought a Sony Mini Disc, and you find joy in being that. I am being that person. 
I am not that. You that specifically type of brought up a bunch of things that became obsolete very fast. I said Blu-ray. <laughs> I said Blu-ray. I'm oh, giving okay. recent tech examples: an Apple Watch, a first-gen Apple Watch, an, an iPad One, um, any of these things. But to me, I'm not that person. I don't need to be that person when it comes to bleeding-edge tech. Because while maybe in high school I got off on the fact that I was like, "Oh, you didn't like Blink One Eighty Two until Dude Ranch." They're unreleased live demos that were only available that's, in San Diego are way better. That's I don't an need unfair to be the, characterization, but go it's ahead. not. It's the same thing. It's not. A, it's not a. You I'm and, not like. I don't like it because I'm a hipster and I and I want to be ahead of the curve. Yes, you do. I want. Wanna, I want this to be, be the, the curve. It, but there's no way. There's no way that a rational person thinks this is the curve. A six hundred dollar piece of technology that's coming out in 2016. Everything gets better. And this is the first consumer release of this thing that's already gotten better in four or three incremental stages over the past five years. And they've said themselves that they see it as a two to three year lifespan. There's no way that this is the curve. You are paying well, overpaying I'm, to be the hmm. first one on the field to play with cool new tech that's going well, to be replaced but soon. But that's different than characterizing it as I want to play with the cool new tech because I want to play with it before you. And once you like it, I'm not going to like it. That's the characterization you're making, which is so let I me think re- unfair. So you'll still like it, but you'll tell people like, well, yeah, it was cool. And I've been trying to tell people, listen to DLC, our first episode. I was saying it was cool. I think you will find not, some solace in that you were ahead of the curve and thinking that is, this is going to be the next big thing. That is completely untrue and unfair. Also, Slanted and, and, and Enchanted by Pavement is a great album. <laughs> I, all right. Well, this is going to get into just you and me bickering about no, me, we have my a, character somehow. We have a tiebreaker here. And yeah, well, uh, Sean has to weigh in and tell me that I'm right. Otherwise, hello, spoilers. Hello, oxen free spoilers. The end of the game. <laughs> I, me, wanna, I mean, I don't ahead. know. I, when it, I, for me, all uh, the tipping point for any of these new pieces of tech are like, what is the killer application for it? Like the first time for me, like when I saw the iPhone, it was, you know, I, oh, I understand what how I'm going to be able to interface with things that are already meaningful for me in an interesting way or any console launch. I mean, you know, sure, they're notoriously not full of awesome games, but at least there's something that looks super awesome or um, has some good mechanics or it's from a developer that we all care about. And like, I think the thing that's still a giant question mark for me, and maybe I'm just not following VR closely enough, but like, what is the one thing that you can't wait to play on it? Like, what's the one thing that shows the promise of this beyond some badass like demos? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. And and yeah, a lot of them are demos. But I mean, I think E-Valkyrie is going to be a really fun, transformative experience. For mm-hmm. me, it's uh, Edge of Nowhere, the um, Insomniac game that's the sort of the, uh, you know, uncharted Tomb Raider-esque mm-hmm. thing in VR. I've only played a little bit of that. I've only played basically a demo of it. But I have really high hopes for what it does and where it goes. But, um, there, you know, there's a whole range of experiences that I'm definitely excited for. For me, I think I get frustrated that the conversation about this stuff sort of by necessity has to become a biz dev conversation Mm -hmm. and everybody is arguing about why it's going to succeed or why it's going to fail rather than like what the experience is. And for me, the reason I'm willing to pony up more money than I thought I was going to have to to have this experience right away is because the experience that I've had just in demos is so cool and so fun and so interesting that I I want to have that experience. I, I'm not throwing my money at this because I want to fund a company or 
start a revolution or be the guy who listened to the album before anybody else. It really isn't that. I just want the experience. I'm just so excited about what it's like to feel like I'm inside a video game rather than looking at one that it it actually feels completely different than anything I've experienced before. And I'm excited for those kinds of new gaming experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. I'm just ready. I'm waiting for there to be several more experiences and for the cost of entry to set experiences being half the price. Like those experiences aren't going anywhere. They're only going to get better. And I love that you're diving in early Um, in the chat. Oh, where is it? SR7 said, Facebook didn't buy into VR for gaming. You guys, Jeff, the early adopters, are guinea pigs for educators, healthcare physicians, and scientists. That's where if VR is going to take off, if ever. And I mean, you are. Anyone, and I was when I bought a PS4 on launch, and anytime you buy anything, you know, when we get, you get a first-gen Prius or whatever, you're like, here we go. I hope this battery doesn't explode. Like, I know they tested it, but like, you're diving in, and you for you, the things that exist justify the price. For me, and I would argue the vast majority of gamers and people interested in this tech, they have not shown enough different types of experiences to justify this price point. That's all it comes down to. And for you, but, there is. And for me, there's nowhere near enough. Okay, fair enough. But I think I would rather the argument not be, is it going to have mainstream adoption? I would rather the argument be, is it going to be something that's worthwhile. And I think Sean is hitting on that. Like he's saying, what is the experience specifically that makes it worthwhile? And I, I think we're going to see more games announced. I mean, you hear numbers like a hundred, 150 games that are in active development for Oculus. Sean, as a developer, do you, do you, are you excited about VR? I mean, your game is very much a storytelling game. It's very much, uh, you know, it wouldn't work in VR necessarily, but are you excited about, other types of experiences or eventually at some point developing a game for VR. We're super excited about that. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing for us, like we, when we started the studio, we just wanted to tell stories in new ways, no matter what. And again, that doesn't mean like big lofty sort of, uh, we're going to transform storytelling for all of, you know, humanity, but more just like, how do we find interesting ways to interact with it? And so VR definitely provides that. Um, I think that, you know, the, the tough part for us as a smaller developer, though, is going, well, we have to kind of fish where the fish are. And if people are going to adopt this and maybe, you know, we're a little bit behind the curve as a studio, because I know a lot of teams that are are looking into it. Um, but for us, we're like, well, we want to continue to go where people are. And so but we look at everything like when the Apple Watch came out, I was like, hey, team, let's figure out a story Apple Watch game. And they were all like, you're insane. And then we spent <laughs> two months trying to figure it out. And I was like, yeah, I am insane. Let's not do it. Um, but we, yeah, like I, I want nothing more than for this to be widely adopted. Cause I think it's, you know, incredible. Um, it's just the bigger question mark of like, there's such blurry lines between that and the Vive and what's going on with AR and like, where do we actually aim our, you know, where's our specific target? And if Oculus, um, and PlayStation VR are it, I just want to know that other people are going to be there waiting for us. Yeah. Um, Let's move on. We there's there's more VR to talk. There's more uh, st- uh, stories of the week to get to. But I do need to thank our sponsor right now, which is Casper. You've heard me talk about Casper before. If you're sleeping on an uncomfortable mattress, there's no excuse for that. Casper is there to help. They're going to give you high-quality, awesome, premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost it would take to buy something from a store. And it's going to give you a better experience than buying it from a store because if you, if you ever – 
have tried to buy a mattress from a walk-in store, you know that you walk in, you probably get harassed by a sales agent. You lay down on something for, you know, 15 seconds and you go, that feels pretty good. And then you walk over and you lay on another one. You go, that one feels pretty good. And you don't really have a chance to really understand what it's like to actually sleep on the mattress. Casper fixes it. They send you a mattress directly to your door and you open the box. It's got a really cool like box unboxing little tech that comes with it. You unbox it and unfolds. You sleep on it for a hundred days before you have to make up your mind. Maybe you make up your mind after two days. Maybe you make up your mind after 50 days. You have 100 days to decide if this is the mattress for you. And if you don't like it, they come to your house and they take it away for you. But chances are you are going to like it because they have really high quality mattresses. There are two different kinds of technology in the mattress, latex foam and memory foam. And they're really inexpensive. 500 bucks for a twin size, 950 for a king size. Compared to industry averages, that is incredibly low. I think that Casper is is a really great deal. I use a Casper. The uh, the best part is because you listen to our show, we're going to get you 50 bucks off your first purchase. All you got to do is go to casper.com slash DLC, use the promo code DLC at checkout, and you'll get $50 toward any mattress purchase. It's pretty great. You're going to get a very inexpensive mattress. I waited far too long in my life to upgrade my mattress. I used the same mattress all through college, all through the first years I was living in Los Angeles, and I didn't realize that you need to replace that mattress because you're going to end up having back problems, and sleep is too important. Choose Casper, get $50 off, and take 100 days to decide whether you like it or not. Casper.com slash DLC and use that promo code DLC. All right, Christian. So uh, what is your story of the week? Giving VR a rest and also because I'm super curious for what he does next. Um, what episode? Oh, man. David Brevik. He was on episode 71. I knew I looked it up in advance. He was on this very show. So I can say friend of the show, David Brevik. He formerly of Blizzard North, Diablo, then Flagship Studios, then Gazillion for Marvel Heroes, um, has left his position as CEO of Gazillion, and he's going independent. The quote is, after doing this for years, I really want to get back into developing games and programming. I got into this industry to make games, and I missed the day-to-day creation process. Um, I think this is really big news, not for necessarily what it means about Marvel Heroes. That game is chugging along and doing fine and it keeps having its updates and it knows, I feel like it knows what it is and what its identity is and what brings people back where Ant-Man's coming out. Now you can play (laughs) Ant-Man in Marvel Heroes and I'm like, I will try him. (laughs) Fair enough. But I, I always find it interesting when people of this pedigree you know, say they want to get back into the nitty gritty of it. Cliff Bozinski kind of did it at Epic where, you know, at some point, like my father-in-law was a chemical engineer and loved doing that. And then at some point when he retired, he was just a manager or whatever, right? And it's like, what? What happened? I wanted to do the thing I'm doing. And so the idea of, of David getting back on the ground floor and using all of his experience and, and everything and making something new and crazy and whatever really excites me. Is this, I mean, is this something that gets you excited about the next Diablo-esque game? Or do you think he'll go a totally different way, Jeff? Um, I think he will go a completely different way. I think that um, it, I mean, he might be. He's talking about independent, independent. I'm, I'm very curious to see what this brings for him as well. Um, 
Sean, I'm curious, you know, you guys are an independent studio. What is, what are the advantages of being independent and what are the challenges? So the upside is uh, pretty much all the the bureaucracy that you don't even realize is impeding um, your day-to-day sort of existence kind of goes away, um, which is really exciting. Like the, the decision-making process in general is much quicker because you're a small team and you're making the decision only based on what's right for the game or the product kind of at that moment. And when you're in a larger studio and when you're in a larger studio that's a sub-studio of something bigger – you, you know, there's just like a lot of other factors at play and that's fine. That's fair. I understand why that works that way in those environments. Um, the downside is you're just like always up against the wall. There's always a million different factors that, um, you have to take into account. There's nobody there to kind of cushion your fall. And so I think that, you know, like the decisions that you make early on, you ideally have a really good plan in place because you can't, at least for us, we certainly couldn't have halfway through our game gone, whoops, we made the wrong decision. We better start the game over. Like we we definitely made sure our pre-production phase, you know, played out and and made the game that we wanted it to be. And so I think it's interesting, you know, granted our team does not have a huge like – community-based, free-to-play, games-as-a-service type of pedigree. And so if we were to try and tackle a game like that, I think that would be uh, pretty pretty challenging for us and we'd have to ramp up. And I would assume that this is what he's going to kind of go and do is a game that lives and breathes uh, you know, as a service for a while. Um, that scares the heck out of me as, as the person running our studio. Cause I just don't think that that's totally our, our skill set yet, but, uh, I would never have it any other way now. Like I love being independent, even if it is, um, you know, there, there's no safety net. It's just that it makes for a better product. I know our game never would have come out of, you know, a large publisher. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, you know, I, I don't think that the sort of Diablo template is, an overdone genre. You know, I, I think that he certainly has made a career of it. Even Hellgate London, um, while, you know, not the most successful game ever sort of was trying to create a Diablo for third person shooter aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if, if he's burnt out on that, on that template and wants to do something wildly different or if, or if he will dip back into the, the free to play model and, and this sort of idea. Um, I'm curious, he's a creative guy. He's a smart guy. We really enjoyed having him on the show. So we're rooting for him. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's exciting. You see so many of these, you know, legendary creators and developers now striking out on their own. And sometimes you get mighty number nine, which, you know, hopefully is great, but it's like, Oh, of course that's what you'd make. Um, and other times you're seeing hopefully radically different things that haven't even seen the light of day yet. And, um, I'm ex- it's exciting. I think anytime someone with this type of pedigree breaks off and wants to get back to it, uh, all you can do is cross your fingers and hope that it's awesome. Yeah. Maybe it's VR, Jeff. Maybe it's VR. Hey, a guy can dream. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think actually my story of the week is going to be, I mean, obviously it's the Oculus and also that the Vive uh, is, ha- you know, announced their pre-orders on February 29th. So these guys are really kind of buttoned up against each other and God knows what the Vive's price point is going to be. I had a chance to try the Vive, um, the new version of the Vive at CES. I'll talk about that in a second. But um, as much as I love all that VR stuff, I actually was very impressed at CES with the announcement that Razer made, actually a whole suite of announcements that Razer made. Uh, They have a new Ultrabook called the Stealth, the Razer Stealth. And uh, it's pretty cool. It's very light and it's, it's, they're sort of aiming it for gamers. 
Um, and but that's not really the most important part of their announcement. I think the Ultrabook is pretty cool. I had a chance to have hands on with it and take a look at it. The screen is very pretty and it is remarkably light for the amount of power that it has. But I think what they also showed, which is this Razer Core, which is a standalone external video card box, basically, that you plug in through USB Type-C or Thunderbolt, and that will amplify the power of the Ultrabook by letting you plug in literally any video card you want. You buy the video card, you put it into this this Razer Core external uh, housing, and then you plug it in via Thunderbolt, and it actually allows the Ultrabook to offload the video card tasks to this external processor. I think that's a game changer, quite literally. I think this is going to be the beginning of a ad hoc way of building PCs that you'll be able to, instead of having to build your rig and decide on your video card and all those things, in even in desktop computers, I think this is the beginning of a, a real plug-and-play component-level decision process of being able to piecemeal upgrade your system and have everything be external in the same way that we've had external hard drives for a long time that boost your, you know, your storage abilities. I think you're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing now that we finally have throughput on USB type C and Thunderbolt that doesn't bottleneck these kind of processes because they're able to push enough data through. You're finally able to have processes externalized and Componentized, so you can just plug and play. I think that is massive. What do you guys think, Sean? Oh, sorry, I dipped out there a second. I absolutely agree. I think the toughest thing is going to be um, how you communicate that to consumers. Like, do you feel like I didn't? I didn't see the news. So, do you feel like they have a streamlined enough communication channel that this isn't going to overwhelm people and that they're going to under like that that a general consumer can understand the value proposition of this? Well, I think. Razer is in a unique position because they speak to very hardcore gamers, right? Their entire business model and their entire um, sort of messaging is built around super hardcore gamers, right? They have the high-end gaming keyboards and the high-end gaming mice, and they're attempting to, you know, really talk to that hardcore. So starting there is a good place because those people, I think, understand the idea and, and have a craving for that, you know, that real power PC. Mm -hmm. uh, market. So to say, Hey, you can have a, a, a laptop in this Ultrabook, and then you can augment that with uh, a real, you know, a, a GeForce 970 or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty awesome. And I talked to the guys there at the booth at CES and they're like, there's no reason why you can't just do this for any PC that has a USB type C or Thunderbolt uh, adapter, because you, you can use this for desktops. You can use this for, you don't have to use our Ultrabook with it. As long as it has the the adapter, you can do this. So I think this is really the first, you know, in what will probably be a lot of different companies offering that kind of thing. And will, I think, ultimately break down the price of really powerful PCs, gaming PCs, because you'll be able to piecemeal buy it. And you won't have mm -hmm. to decide, oh, I need to, you know, buy this whole rig right now. I can buy this here and that there. And, and, and when I upgrade parts of my PC, I don't have to upgrade all of my PC. Yeah, it's a great it's a great first step to that world of 
you know, people have tried it. I think there was an Android phone where the commercial, you went through the x-ray or they put it through the x-ray, a baggage claim at an airport. And it's like the guy puts his phone down and it goes through and like on the screen, it shows a full computer or whatever. And and later they plop the thing in front of a keyboard. and It's like powerful enough to run a computer or, you know, whatever. And I think we're getting there. And I think this is a great first step. Of course, there will be other bottlenecks that keep this, um, the stealth from being the, most powerful computer on the block five years from now where not everything can be upgraded and, and plug and play this way right now. It's just the graphics card, but, and I think if people ran there, the test to see if they could run a, um, Oculus, even if they wanted to, they were like, Nope, <laughs> never mind. Uh, it's going to be, I got to replace parts of my computer, but anything that makes something, the parts that work, keep working is great, right? Like if you love this screen on this laptop and why do you have to buy a whole new rig just because you need a little more graphics power to now that you're doing film editing or, you know, better games or whatever like that. And I do love the idea of something like your phone is everything. And then as you need other things, you plug it into your 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 workstation or whatever, and it piggybacks off of this GPU and, and this graphics card and, you know, whatever you need it to do in this sound bl- driver or <laughs> sound blaster, <laughs> whatever you sound want blaster. to do <laughs> <laughs> to, <laughs> to pump up the specs of what you're working on. I think something like that is awesome. And then the next step is that it's wireless somehow or, you know, just conducted. Mm-hmm. So you just place it on a pad and it's like, Vwomp, and everything is now powered in your house or your room. And it sounds super science fiction-y, but we're not far off. And I think the most interesting thing about Razer and this is what you were saying, Jeff, where they were like, yeah, I mean, we, anyone should be able to do this. <laughs> you know, you, you buy the core and you plop it in any computer that has the the throughput to make this thing happen. And it almost seemed like they were saying like, we kind of couldn't believe we stumbled into this first. <laughs> like right. people should be doing this. So I hope it's a success and, and you see more of it. I, I think it's, I think it's huge. I think it's a paradigm shift potentially. I think it's, uh, it's really going to change the way people game on PCs, which I think is pretty cool. Um, Did they mention when they would start rolling this out? Uh, I think they didn't say specifically, but I think it's early first quarter of this year that this, these things are going to, well, actually, I think the core comes out later than the ultra first book, half the ultra of the year. The core won't yeah. ship until sometime in the first half of the year is what they're saying. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Pretty cool though. Um, all right, guys, just a couple of other stories I wanted to hit on specifically because we have Sean here, who's a developer. I thought this was fascinating that there was this big story about how just cause three is causing problems for pirates. And evidently, the uh, the specific kind of of uh, DRM or copy protection that is on Just Cause Three, there is a was a big uh, big hacker community, big hacker group that was trying to crack it and release it for free, as they often do on Torrent and other places. And because Just Cause Three uses the Denuvo anti tamper, they haven't been able to crack it. And they released a statement that said, uh, "We might just throw in the towel." And then in the in the near future, there will be no free games to play in the world, which is patently ridiculous. Wow. Uh, yeah, right. Oh, poor, poor hackers. Um, but uh, Sean, as somebody who creates something and wants people to pay for it, I imagine. Um, what is your feeling on this? Obviously, I think it's a positive thing for everybody. But um, what, what do you think? Does it sort of enable... Uh, game prices to potentially come down if there's less piracy? I don't think the prices will end up coming down. I mean, for us, and I can only speak very specifically from where like our vantage point is right now, we are definitely concerned about, you know, like putting, even just putting out a DRM free version of the game. And so when we look at platforms outside of, you know, steam and windows 10, 
it gets a little less interesting to us proposition wise. But all of that said, we know people are always going to find a way to be pirates, which sucks. Um, and the, I mean, the other thing in conjunction with that even is like, we're just scared about spoilers getting out. So I'm worried about Friday, people just playing the whole game on YouTube, but whatever it is, what it is, that's the era that we're in. And so for our small studio, I mean, I think, uh, the game just getting out there more, we've kind of come to this place of, if somebody does end up pirating the game, we don't want them to be doing that. But if they talk to 10 other friends about it and, you know, there's exposure for the game, that's awesome. For a studio the size of, you know, that just caused three guys like that uh, is a whole other ball game. And I think that um, I'm surprised that games still don't even cost more than 60 bucks, you know, for a lot of this stuff. So I don't know if it's going to impact pricing heavily one way or the other, but I'm really looking forward to seeing if it impacts people's sales because, you know, it's scary. It's really scary when you look at how a lot of games are hit that some games out there, you know, nine out of 10 copies that people are playing have been pirated and it's just like, you know, mind blowing. Yeah. It's, it's really scary with the PC, the PC game market, how, how rampant it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it, it leads a lot of developers to make that tough decision to kind of not put out a PC version or put out a PC version that's vastly delayed, which Mm -hmm. is always a bummer too. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Uh, Christian, what's your feeling on this? it's hard to say right i mean it's a little bit of speculation but hopefully everybody you want things to be cheaper and you don't want pirates to get things but then you have companies like cd project red that are like go uh enjoy our games we're gonna put it out and we just want you to put it out and of course we want you to pay but we're being open about it and that seems awesome right i mean i think it was on our game of the year episode where i was like Everybody loves CG Pro- CD Projekt Red, what they do with their DLC, how they announce it, how they release their games, good old games. Everybody is really enamored by that. And is that enough? You create a community and people then want to pay for your thing. or Because it's all D- DRM free is what you're referring to. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's yeah. easy to pirate if, if people want to and to share. And Steve Jobs, you know, his well, idea. I, Go ahead. Sorry. I, I mean, just I just want to clarify what you're saying, because I don't think <clears throat> the reason it's DRM free is so it's easy to pirate. It's DRM free because they're trying to create the end user experience as uh, friction free as possible. They want to make it easy for you and you don't have any problems putting it on multiple of your machines that you, you know, right. you have or or create some situation where there's a problem because of the DRM. Correct. They're not trying to they're not saying pirate our stuff. <laughs> they're not trying to make it easy for pirates, but in their attempts to make it easy for lawful owners and users it then also makes it easy for people to pirate and i'm sure that the numbers on witcher 3 are just jaw dropping with the it has to be it has to be be crazy um so the steve jobs thing i was saying is you know when he did itunes or whatever the idea was if you make something easy enough for anyone to understand and do they will pay as Mm -hmm. long as the price they're not you're not gouging them on price so yeah you could go on to Napster and search and hopefully get the right in uh, sync song you're looking for. But here it's 99 cents. You know, it's this this quality and you have it and it works on these devices. And I think I, I still think there's some that's kind of where the balance is. If right, if, if people feel like they're getting what they pay for and the experience is what is promised to them, they don't feel bad paying for it. Of course, there are always going to be jerks and there are always going to be people stealing and pirating or whatever. But I feel like for the vast majority of users, that'll be the case. The problem lies with you know, buy the Battlefront season pass at $50. What's in it? I don't know, but you better buy it if you want the real thing or the Arkham Knight $40. It's going to be awesome new experiences every month. And then it's just crap, essentially. And so I think people then wrongfully, but maybe justifiably feel 
like they're allowed to steal because they've been ripped off or they've been mm. abused. So they're like, well, screw these guys. Give it away free. And it's a you know, that's cycle. a bigger thing of, yeah, of human nature. And we're all jerks. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also benefits, you know, when you look at like CD Projekt Red or you look at Rocksteady or any of these teams, these other teams we're talking about, they're in a position where that decision making process is very different than for like a small team. So it's sort of like when Radiohead started dropping albums for the name your own price version. It's like, wow, they're heroes to everybody now. But guess what? They're also Radiohead. Like they can do whatever they <laughs> want. Everybody knows who Radiohead is. Nobody knows who Night School is yet, so I'm not putting our game out for free, you know? Right. <laughs> like no, just, I think it just depends on Louis where C.K. drops an album are. for $5, buy it. <laughs> right. And everyone's like, no, comedy's open for everybody. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> you know, Brandon Smitherhead is $5. Everyone's like, who Who are you? <laughs> who are you? Right. <laughs> Dude, I'm a, I'm a huge Smitherhead fan. We, we call ourselves Smitherhead heads. So. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um. So we'll wrap up the news segment and we'll get to games, but I just wanted to name check the fact that, again, Awesome Games Done Quick raised $1.2 million to prevent cancer, uh, and that's pretty awesome. Um, If you didn't watch any of the Awesome Games Done Quick, you owe it to yourself to check out the the archived streams because, man, (laughs) there's some inhuman acts, inhuman feats of game playing uh, on display. Um, I don't know if either of you guys got to see any of those, but uh, it's so great. I missed all of it, but I saw my Twitter feed was just blowing up with it the whole time. So, um, what were yeah, you doing? Just hanging out, just chilling. <laughs> yeah, it's specifically. I think Mario Maker has sort of revolutionized this entire event because mm. now you have basically levels that can be created specifically to befuddle the hardest of the hardcore these insane guys that that mario maker race is amazing and um i can't i should have looked it up beforehand but i can't remember the name of that ddr-esque game where the guys were playing at like a a, a speed that doesn't seem possible (laughs) did you see that christian do you know what game that was i did not i do not oh shoot maybe somebody in the chat will tell me but um it's a it's a rhythm game that people play on keyboards with their fingers and you you have to watch. I mean, I tweeted about this. It, oh, it is inhuman. It. Yeah, somebody. I saw a gif of it, and it was like, "This is not sped up," and it just looks like fingers that are about to explode with like the bones <laughs> flying out. Yeah, it's ins- it's it doesn't seem possible. It's insane. It's insane. Anyway, very congratulations again to a great for a great event, great cause, and really cool uh, amount of money they raised. So that's really really wonderful. All right, we'll move on now to the playlist. Sean, is there any universe in which you've been playing anything other than Oxenfree? Yeah, the crazy thing, and everybody on my team makes fun of me for this right now, but this is like maybe my game of the year, is You Must Build a Boat. Have you played this game or heard of this game? I haven't, but I've heard of it. Yeah, (laughs) I haven't played it. It's so good. So there is, uh, and the reason I've been able to play is because, yeah, it's, a, it's an iOS game, so you can get in and out pretty quickly. Um, it's like I dip between that and Fallout, which cannot be the more like polar opposite games. Uh, but you must build a boat. It, I, I think the name of the developer is 82 Games. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Um, and they made a game called 10,000 or 10 million a couple of years before. And it's basically like all the components of this game are things that I 
hearing myself explain it, I would never be into this game. First of all, it's a match three, the way you, the core interaction. So it's like that I would never be into. But it's an RPG mixed with a match three where along the top of the screen, you've got a little dude that's running along and coming across things like, you know, the things that you have to attack or treasure chests you have to open or just dealing with these things. And on the bottom, you're lining up, you know, various weapons and spells and stuff like that. But the core mechanic when you're actually playing it, it feels like an action game. It feels like you have to be developing crazy strategies on the fly. And then as mentioned in the title, this whole time you're just building this boat and your boat gets massive. You're like building a, I'm going to put a tavern in there. I'm going to put a dude that trains little monsters. I'm going to put a <laughs> bunch of ghosts in there. And it, this, your boat just becomes super enormous. And it's this extremely deep RPG that has like amazing core mechanics that are super fun to play with. And it goes on and on and on, like seemingly forever. So uh, I highly, highly recommend that uh, you must build a boat. <laughs> that sounds actually really cool. I have heard of it. And somebody was telling me that, that they were addicted to it as well. And I can't remember who it was, but uh sounds awesome. It's great. Uh Christian, how about you? You've been playing Oxenfree and other things, right? I have been playing Oxenfree and other things. The Neither one of these things I'm talking about will contain spoilers, but <laughs> um, I... I fired up my addiction for um, Disney Infinity 3.0. As mentioned, and I think last week's show, I picked up the Force Awaken playset. And um, ah, that game for me, you guys, it, uh, I mean, it's unhealthy. I really, really like so much of it. Like when you're doing the story missions, it's, it's fun and it's light and it scratches that Lego style of gameplay where like there's not really a challenge behind it, but there's enough stuff that you're not, you know, just holding left to win or whatever. And they give you just enough of that. And you're like, this is so cool. This is so cool. And then they drop you in a hub world. And they're like, you, you like those story missions, didn't you, bro? And you're like, yeah, I totally, I totally like those. And they're like, cool. So to do any more of them, go do 10 of these really stupid fetch quests. Well, they can't be that stupid game. No, they are. Literally, <laughs> walk from two feet over here, pick up a thing, two feet over there, drop the thing. Oh, that's not that bad. Do it 20 more times. And you're just <laughs> like, why? Like, at no point when they were developing this game did anyone sit there and go like this is fun it's i mean there's no way it is awful and it's, it's excruciating it's busy work for kids dude that's why it's called disney infinity it's because it, it takes it just ha kids have infinite amount of free time and so it just sucks it up for them i yeah it, maybe it is it's, it's babysitting what they need to do is now i finally am on board for vr jeff because my daughter will get a vr helmet in this game and what she won't know is that the controller is actually a broom <laughs> <laughs> and i'll be like now sweep up those little rats those space rats and she's just cleaning the house for me um maybe i get that has to be the reason i don't know i can't think of a better one off the top of my head but so i sit there and i suffer through that i, I uh streamed it there was the, the game i streamed on thursday on on my twitch channel which is just my name christian spicer um and like i'm sitting there playing and i'm just like you know just dogging on this game and then i keep doing it <laughs> it's like an hour hour and a half later and, you know, and then they get another uh, story mission. And I'm like, that was so great. This is so fun. And then it's like, you've unlocked the next hub world. And I was like, son of a. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's more of the same. They make it a little more Lego-y in this one where you're collecting salvage because it kind of plays into the the characters you play as, um, the characters from the movie in which you would do that. And you collect salvage and you use it to now repair ladders and you can climb up and access new places or whatever, which is very Lego-y. I almost wonder if Disney Infinity 4.0 is just going to be called Disney Infinity 4.0 Lego because <laughs> like you know it's getting closer and closer to those games. And the last thing I'll say about it is um 
the Finn figure is just a real miss, and it's it stinks because I love I love the character Finn in, uh, from the film, but the the figure and he comes bundled with the playset, which I guess helps because otherwise I wouldn't buy it. But he's just standing there like kind of holding a blaster down by his hip, but he's got like this weird kind of stance where it's like cocked to one hip or whatever. It just it's so lame, and there are so many other characters just holding a blaster like Leia, Poe, or Boba Fett, which looks incredible. And I feel like when they did the Finn character, they were just like, what do we have Finn pose as? And they looked over and some guy was leaning on a water cooler and they were like, perfect. <laughs> 3D print that. Um, but you still haven't dove into any of this, huh, Jeff? No, no, I'm resisting. I, I have a few of the figurines just because the figurines are cool, but I have not played any of the game. Are you um, the Toys to Life? look cool? The Finn figure? No, the Finn figure looks horrible. Like, but I mean, like his model, even because I, I love their art no. direction. The thing, that, oh, even that—that that sucks. That's Giant what I mean. Bummer. The model, That's lame. Yeah, the art direction is amazing. The model is off. I will, uh, I'll, I'll tweet a picture of it. It's awful. Are you into any mm. of these Toys to Life games? Is this something that uh, you know clutters your desk like it does mine, Sean? I so it's one of these things where I start to dip into them like Skylanders I did a couple of years ago and I really like uh, I think it was called was it called Trap Team the one where you're like capturing them inside of crystals yeah oh yeah they're like super cool concept I just I just have too much stuff like I just don't want stuff anymore I want to get rid of everything I want to get rid of all my movies I want everything to just be like floating up in the cloud and so for me toys uh all over the place yeah i'm not super into it but if any of them are calling to me it is uh it's the lego one actually like it just looks so rad i I really want to play that um but no haven't done it that said i've got a three-year-old daughter so i'm sure i'm just holding back the floodgates it's gonna (laughs) hit me no matter what anyways and Uh, the prototypes of of the oxen free figures coming out are incredible looking and everyone <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> spoiler <laughs> hey i'm sure that uh, anybody that was interested has already paused the podcast and gone to google it up but in case you haven't the game i was talking about is called step mania thank you uh consonant q in the chat for for getting my back on that one uh that was that crazy uh dance dance revolution-esque rhythm game that people are at like inhuman levels of so you really owe it to yourself if you haven't seen the video of these guys playing it. Google Step Mania. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I agree with you guys that those uh, by far are the best uh, the best models. Um, played a bunch of Oxen Free, not just because Sean is here. I will say I really like it. I think you guys should get in on it. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely a game that is made, right, just for me, it seems like. It's one of those experience <laughs> games. It's one of those story games. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty great and we're not supposed to review it yet. So I can't, but um, I will say that the, my favorite thing is that when you talk about that game, as we have in the earlier segment, what you start talking about is the story of it. You talk about what happens to the characters and the choices that you made, not like, Oh, so crazy how I pushed left on my stick. You know, it's, it's more about, it's a story. It's really about living through that story. And it's, it's the aesthetic is awesome. So kudos, Sean. It's, I, it's really cool. Thank you. Thank May you. I ask my last question as it pertains to the game? It's something we can't talk about. When you make such a narrative-focused game, are you? how do you handle your personal or your team's concern for spoilers where we live in an age where PC players of Battlefront were changing their avatar to reveal spoilers from The Force Awakens so that if they were the best player in the match, you would see something that would ruin part of a movie of a franchise you clearly care about as you play a Star Wars game, to what extent, you know, are you trying to be protective of spoilers or does that, is that a consideration at all for creating a game that is so narrative focused? 
Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that we take into account when we're making the game. It's not something like, ultimately I know within days, minutes, who knows, uh, people are going to have some sort of an FAQ up that has every version of every ending and what all the different characters do. Um, for us knowing that and taking that into account almost made us want to lean into that a little bit more, if it makes sense. So like, we didn't want to make a game that then the spoilers that are there are linear passive spoilers. It's more like because you make all of these various decisions through the game, um, there are many different endings and many different types of interactions that can happen with the characters. And so we want every version of that to feel like for the player, like it was their version of it. So um, I don't know if I'm explaining that the right way, but it's more or less like we, the big, big beats of the game, the biggest ones, especially sort of near the end, um, there's a pretty big variety of them. So it's, it's something that we, um, we wanted to get people talking about and uh, because we assume that people will, you know, have spoilers out there. So it's more about then what did my Alex do? How did my Alex make her way through her story? Um, which is an awesome game too, her story. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I personally, yeah, I'm totally freaking out about that stuff being out there as early as Friday because it's like, I, I just, the mystery is a big component of the game. Um, so yeah, I just, I, uh, I'm hoping that it becomes more a conversation about like, Oh wait, did you try this? Oh, that can happen. Oh, that's cool. Um, and that it's, it's more of a dialogue than it is like, and here's a giant star Wars spoiler, you know, <laughs> like here's what happened, <laughs> which happened to me by the way. Oh man, this sucks. So on launch or on uh, star Wars release day, we tweeted out a picture that had, uh, Alex dressed up like Han and then Ren, who's Alex's kind of doofy buddy dressed up in a, um, in a Chewbacca costume and he's like sweating and kind of falling over and he's got the, uh, the, the Chewbacca mask kind of taken off. And I was like, Hey, no spoilers. Happy star Wars day. And we, all these replies to us were all of the major spoilers of star Wars, which I had not seen yet. And then I wanted to throw my computer out the window. It sucked. People are the worst. Thanks, Internet. I love you anyways. I still love you. (laughs) Uh, Some other stuff on my playlist. Uh, I got really into playing Magic the Gathering Puzzle Quest Mm. on my uh, iPad while I was traveling. Um, So if you have been following me for years and watched the Totally Rad Show, you know that one of the first games on that show that we all went gaga for, I think it was our Totally Rad Show game of the year that year, was Puzzle Quest. We all just thought it was this brilliant mashup of a role-playing game and a puzzle game and since then that's sort of become commonplace but that was the first game to really do it and there's been myriad versions of puzzle quest since then as well and i haven't played a lot of the most recent ones in fact even marvel puzzle quest wasn't enough for me to dip back in but some for some reason i gave magic the gathering puzzle quest a try and man is it cool uh really really clever integration of those two systems so you're playing puzzle quest which is basically a match three and the the colors that you're matching in the match three are your mana. So you're develop you're getting your mana that way, and you're earning uh, you know points toward being able to play cards out of your hand. And you have a hand of cards every round. You draw another card, and then you're able to reorder the cards in your stack to come out uh, in in the order that you choose. So you can decide if you want to pull a a person or a I mean a creature or a uh, a spell or whatever it is. And you're earning different types of mana from the board in order to to earn enough energy to to bring them out. And you're fighting these duels with those with those um, creatures in the same way that you would a magic game. 
the integration is really, really cool. It really does feel very different from any other Puzzle Quest game. My complaints are that uh, it doesn't have the fun exploration aspect of Puzzle Quest, which I always enjoyed having the ability to go to different areas and decide which area I was going to explore and maybe buy items or whatever. That sort of role-playing layer. Uh, this is very linear. You're on a, a in the campaign mode. You're going from quest to quest, and you sort of just you know fight them as they come. There is no there's no choice there. There is a layer of story. They're giving you you know a, a bit of text that explains who the character is that you're fighting and what their story is. But it doesn't feel as story driven as the original Puzzle Quest did because of that lack of choice. And then the other gripe is that it really is built as a free-to-play game and there's hooks mm. constantly for that and i'm just so sick of it i'm just so sick of it. i mean it, it i think it it was in starker contrast because the original puzzle quest sort of predated the free-to-play revolution especially on mobile uh and so i have memories of playing puzzle quest because i bought the whole game and could play it however I chose. And in this game, it's constantly, you're earning like three different types of currency that do certain things. And you spend currency to level up your character and it's constantly offering you different deals and uh, you can buy currency this way and that way. And uh, you, do you want to level up different planeswalkers? Well, then you have to figure out which one's more important. You can't level them both up because you're going to spend up your currency. It's like, oh man, just let me play. I'll pay you 15 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever it is to just get the whole game. Let me just play. Do we so. ever come out of this, Sean, Jeff? Do we ever come out of this? Or do people, like we complain about it, but clearly they're making buckets of money. <laughs> so we never come out of this. Uh, I don't see how we're going to come out of this. The fu- it's funny that game, you must build a boat. So that's a pay dab, but it is structured similarly. And I have such a knee jerk reaction that I, sometimes it's asking me to grind to do stuff. And I'm like, where are they going to ask me to pay? Where are they? And you know, a few years ago, I never would have thought that. And now I'm like, Oh, this game's trying to do it to me too, but it's actually just the way it's balanced. Um, I don't know the it, it's, I'm hoping I'm sincerely hoping that people find, new ways with new mechanics to monetize. And yeah, there's a few games that do it really well right now, the Hearthstones of the world. But like in general, no, I don't see it going away. And it super bums me out. And it's just a giant divide in where the gaming landscape is going. And some people, the crazy thing, you know, I've worked on a couple games like that. And there are a lot of people who are perfectly okay with it. Perfectly okay. And they almost want it, you know? So I think all it means is that the gaming industry is getting more diverse and the types of people making games are getting more diverse. And in some cases, it gets borderline, like, nefarious the way that they're monetizing because it is like... They have psychologists on staff that know, okay, let's put a pain point right here so we, they will definitely pay us at this moment in time. Uh, yeah. And that that sucks. That feels gross. But a lot of people are down for that. So I don't know. I, I've just decided to look the other way. <laughs> well, you know, I've definitely spent more money on Heroes of the Storm than any other game this year. And that is all cosmetic items. Literally, mm-hmm. I've spent so much money on cosmetic items. It's ridiculous. And I don't feel great about it, but I don't feel bad about it because I'm not playing that secondary level game, which is this weird game that I had to play with Magic the Gathering Puzzle Quest where it's like, oh, do I spend my currency here? Do I... How do I min-max the amount of actual dollars that I have to invest? I don't want to waste my brain energy playing that game. I want to play the actual game that you developed and you gave to me, you know? Yeah. I mean, the other thing is just that like the cosmetic stuff you're talking about has a feeling of permanence. So even if it's not highly valuable, you're like, oh, I just bought a thing that I know. And all of these other 
you know, various like secondary currencies, you're basically just buying like French fries that are disappearing <laughs> within 30 seconds. And so, so it's just kind of, yeah, that's what makes it even feel grosser is that you're only using it in a temporary sense. Um, I'm all for the ridiculous, you know, hats and cosmetic things of the world and would not be against that at all. But just a lot of games don't support that because it's not that valuable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You said it very well. Um, I also want to talk real quick about my CES experience. Uh, this is the first year I've ever been, uh, which is kind of surprising even to me. It seems like I should have been before now, but I'd always managed to avoid it. But I went uh, covering it for CNET and um, man, I thought Comic-Con was big. I thought E3 was big. CES is big. It is massive. What a show. It's just endless. You literally cannot see everything. There's. It takes over all of Vegas. It's insane. But I did see a lot of really cool stuff. And I thought I'd give a report on the coolest things I saw. Uh, first of all, new TVs are amazing, guys. The high dynamic range televisions are just jaw-dropping. As a guy who just bought a new TV, I'm like, ugh. But still you have lots of cool things to look forward to with televisions. Cause the, those, uh, OLED TVs with the high dynamic range, uh, they're just, they just look like ink on screen. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, saw a lot of those up close, which was neat. I got to try that Omni VR thing, which is, has just started shipping to, uh, to the Kickstarter backers, which is the VR device that you actually stand in and it lets you run around and be a, a physical participant in VR. Uh, you look a little silly and it's certainly something that's not for everybody because of where you're going to put it. But uh, it's this, it's this, it's a circle that you stand in and you sort of attach to your waist and then you wear special shoes and it's on a sort of a half dome uh, pad underneath your feet and you can slide your feet and, and, you know, pick them up and run in place, basically, on this half dome underneath you. And uh, it reads that input and translates it into movement in the game. It actually is platform agnostic, so it doesn't care which VR headset you use. And it doesn't care really what game you use because uh, it it outputs that input as um, as just regular old WASD movement so you can actually use it with any game they have specifically designed games uh that they're they're touting which are their sort of arena shooter which is what i played uh and i thought it was gonna feel dumb honestly i really was skeptical about how it was gonna feel and it's much more fun than i thought it was gonna be i think they have a real opportunity to market it as a way to make video gaming actually uh you know good for fitness and and will actually have you uh get in shape or actually be physically exerting yourself while playing video games. Um, I don't think it's, you know, going to be a mainstream product. This feels like a Dave and Buster's type of a product, uh, but it is pretty cool and it works. And I will say most importantly, I didn't get even a little bit nauseated. So hmm. I thought that was the sort of biggest achievement that they managed to do. Um, but it's cool. It's called Omni VR and it's only 600 bucks, which compared to an Oculus is, I mean, you need an Oculus also, but, <laughs> did anybody um, hurt themselves did you see anybody like eat it you really can't i mean the only way you can hurt yourself is when is getting into or out of it because once you're in it there's there's literally a waist strap that straps you in and there's buckles that like attach to your thighs so you are not able to fall over you literally cannot fall over it will hold you up um 
but getting into and out of it is tricky because you're wearing these special slippery shoes that are designed to be able to slide on that half dome surface underneath you. And so they kept saying, like, put both hands on the sides to steady yourself as you walk, you know, into and out of it because you could just slip. And it's kind of like wearing bowling shoes, you know? Mm. I want this so bad. I am. Uh, I might be ridiculous. This sounds awesome. Like this will be the thing. If I get an Oculus, I'm buying that thing at the same time in a bundle. It sounds Dude, so it's, good. It's really cool. And they had it's these ridiculous. professional dudes playing it and uh, playing in one-on-one. And they were like full on running full speed in place. And I didn't get that good. You know, I, in my short time, I played it for like 10 minutes, but even in 10 minutes, I was able to, I felt like I could go wherever I wanted. I never felt unsafe. I felt like I, you know, I got to a point where I was moving pretty quickly. I wasn't like sprinting like those dudes, but, um, I was impressed and, and it's, I could see it being really fun and I could see it being, you know, they're actually gearing it for a esports idea where, they can have these dudes who are really, really good at it, you know, be, you know, playing at a very high level. I think that could mm-hmm. be a fun watch, too. Yep. Um, and then finally, I want to talk about the Vive because uh, we heard announcement of the the new uh, front facing camera on the Vive and the new the new hardware that the Vive is going to ship with when it finally ships in April. And I got uh, finally got to, to try it. I mean, I tried the Vive last E3, but this is the new version with the front facing camera. And I'm here to tell you, it's pretty great. Uh, it's so clever the way they have integrated that front-facing camera. So basically, you you know you're in the VR world, and so you have no outside perception. But on the new Vive controllers, there's a dedicated button, and if you push that button once, it brings up what is basically like a neon outline of everything in the world around you. So people and walls and whatever the the cat running by. It's a, it's, it looks like a a Photoshop filter of the world around you. And they said the reason they do that instead of just showing you the, you know, pure video of it is because the video will look too real and it'll actually disorient people and make them not know whether they have the goggles on or not, (laughs) which seems pretty crazy to me. But then, uh, so you can change the sort of the filter that it uses and, and you can have it be, uh, as, you know, as vibrant or as, as detailed as you need it to be. But it, it very much makes you feel uh, like you at, at any point, you don't have to take the goggles off. You can just get your orientation in the world and then jump right back into the game. And if you double tap the button on the controllers, a perfect video output of the world is sort of attached to what looks like, like a five by seven photo in your hand so if you look down at your hand where you're holding the controller there'll be a like a five by seven photograph that is a moving video that you can move around and just like sort of check quickly what's happening in the world by holding your hand up and then you can get you know dismiss it and you're still in the game i really want cool. this so bad oh you're killing me right <laughs> it's, it's so, so awesome. cool i i don't know I mean, I feel like the reason they included that and the sort of raison d'etre for, for the Vive uh, in total is because they're doubling down on this on-your-feet experience. And I think that Oculus is pretty smart to make at least the initial release very much a seated experience. I think people are going to embrace that more. But I have to say, the standing experience of the Vive 
for everything except the cord. And they have a new way of feeding the cord out the back of the headset, the headset that makes it less obtrusive, but um, it's still not ideal. You still, if you're wandering around, you don't want to have a cord at all that could possibly get wound around your feet. But that, that experience is really neat. Like I did the, um, the aperture uh, demo where you're inside portal and they like, it's so, it's so amazing. It's almost photo real. And you're repairing this robot and it, it, it like blows out the robot in that way. You see those like exploded CAD diagrams and you can walk all the way around it and rotate individual bits that make up the inside workings of the robot. It is staggering, <laughs> staggering. And they showed me another one where you're underwater on this old wreckage of the ship and there's fish all around you and you can interact with the fish with the controllers. And then a giant whale f- swims by and swims right up to you. It's like... I can't even tell you guys how crazy an experience that is, but I do think that the seated experience is what will be embraced first. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, they they tease that they had come up with something right that was like game changer, and they're revealing it soon. And I think it is. I think it is pretty big because even in a seated experience, if you're really into a game, um, I enjoy getting a sip of a drink, having some water, or eating yeah. something during a cutscene, or if my phone rings, being like, "Oh, got it." Or, you know, I don't know if you could text back or something like that, but there is enough downtime, even in the most engaging of games, I feel like sometimes that it'd be nice to be able to just be like, boop, and see what's going on. Or if you hear the door open, right. <laughs> and you're just like, uh, or you're expecting your wife or your brother, whomever, someone to come home, you can just wave to them instead of just looking in the wrong way and being like, I know, yeah, I'm almost dead. <laughs> um, well, also, you know, a lot of seated applications. It has a, it has a, a built-in application where... If you walk too close to a piece of furniture or a wall or something, the grid of that thing will immediately pop into your view. So you don't ever run into the wall. And I think they could easily do that if they aren't already with with humans. Like the Mm -hmm. idea uh, that I'm vulnerable in VR because I'm disconnected to the world. Like if a person walks into my space, seeing their outline pop up in that virtual world, I think will make people feel a lot more comfortable wearing the goggles. I think that's really smart. Yeah, yeah you don't want to sit on your sit on your dog like yeah. Christopher in The Sopranos, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> don't want to pull a Christopher. <laughs> Christopher. <laughs> anyway, so uh, a lot of cool stuff at CES, and um, it was a really really neat experience that I uh, that I, that I, you know I'm I'm excited for Vive. I don't know if I'm going to pre order it as well as Oculus, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, it certainly feels like very high end. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say about CES really quick is I also had the opportunity to try a whole bunch of Me Too VR goggles. And uh, to reinforce your point, Christian, the the potential for someone's first VR experience being cruddy and off-putting and souring to them to the entire VR idea is real. Because there's a lot of these goggles out there that... Uh, are trying to also be involved in the space and are undercutting the price considerably and are just garbage. They're really bad. And, you know, part of me is like, yeah, 600 bucks is, is a lot, but I'm hoping that 600 bucks means it's 600 bucks in quality, that it's a really premium experience. uh, And that, you know, these, these ones that are out there for 300 or 250 or whatever, that are really going to just be crap. um, Won't be what people will, you know, associate with vr yeah hopefully hopefully that i feel like the early adopters are usually smart to that maybe it's like the christmas gift type or you know birthday gift type thing where the uneducated consumer is buying the thing but hopefully the person that gets it 
is still generous to the person who gave it to them and appreciates the effort that went into it and then returns it and yeah. <laughs> saves up and gets the thing that they actually want. All right, guys, that, that does it for the playlist. Um, let's, why don't we carve out a little bit of tabletop time? Right now, right now. Sean, any chance that you play uh, board games? Uh, yeah, I'm actually trying to get into Netrunner, but now is the Ooh. worst possible time to get into Netrunner. Like, yeah. And I guess it's not fully on a, a board game, but yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm learning a whole other life with this. So uh, I'll have to pause on that one. But yeah, then otherwise, I don't know. I haven't really played too many in recent past, except for all the the standby kind of party game cards against humanity esque stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to some recommendations from you guys. Well, uh, Android Netrunner certainly is an awesome game that I, I look at from afar as well. And I go, I want to get into that, but I kind of feel like you can't get into that halfway, right? You got to yeah. like dive all in uh, to that, to that experience. But it's, it's an awesome asymmetrical um, player versus player one-on-one card game. Sort of like Magic the Gathering, I guess, a little bit, but much, much, much different in a lot of ways. Um, you're playing either hackers or sort of these corporate, um, corporate, corporate overlord types, and one player plays each faction, and they play very differently from one another. And you build decks, and you, you know, it's it just everyone that I've talked to that likes it doesn't just like it; they love it. So. It's so intensely dense. Like I, I would recommend anybody who wants to go play it, definitely play with somebody who knows what they're doing because like my wife and I tried to play it three nights in a row and couldn't get through one round and tried for like two hours. <laughs> like this yeah. is insane. Um, so yeah, you need like a shaman with you who knows the world of Netrunner because otherwise you'll be pretty lost. Did you have a chance to, to look at, I think um, Fantasy Flight does these video training videos for them. Have you had a chance to look at any, any of those? Ah, no, that's a good idea because I'm just stumbling through the instruction manual and everything has its own naming conventions. So it's just like, can't you just call a thing a token, but it's right. not. And so I'm like, I don't know what any of this stuff means. So I will look that up. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, they're on YouTube and they, you know, I think they're they're you know made professionally and they're really high quality and they're, they're meant to teach you the game. So... Uh, maybe those will help. Awesome. I have a game, Jeff. You do? Mm-hmm. You didn't put it in the breakdown, Christian. I know, because I, I was literally Surprise. sitting here in my office trying to think of the name for it, and it's been like background app running in my head all show. And I thought of, it's it's for the toddler set. It's uh, let's be honest, I'm not sitting down playing some games. Um, <laughs> but Estelle loves it. She is also three, and um, it's I think it's serves educational purpose. It's called Zingo. And it's bingo with a zing. <laughs> oh, but it's, a, boy. It, it's a bunch of tiles <laughs> and cards. And the way it works is, and you can obviously play competitively or not, but it's like a blind reveal of two tiles come out. And then you look at the tiles and you see if you have a match on your board, right? So then if you're playing with three people or four people, whatever the tiles come out, you need to process mentally. If you have the picture on your card to get a match and then also a race to get it and to get the, you know, reach and get the thing and put it on your on your um, card and if you reach for like an apple and you don't have an apple on your card then you get a penalty and you have to take one off and so in terms of like recognition and awareness or something like that um it's obviously in uh what's that word edutainment type game but 
Asto really likes it, and the little tiles are plastic pieces that click, clack, click, clack as they as they go, and she likes sliding the thing and whatever. And so if you're looking for a two-year-old to four-year-old style game, I think it's like 14, 15 bucks or something like that, that um, you can let your kid win until you know they're old enough to realize that you're actually better at than them at everything. <laughs> uh, but uh, not at being cute. Well, let's be honest. Uh, they'll by cute. the time they're old enough to realize you're better than them at everything, they also are no longer cute. So, <laughs> and you're becoming a senior citizen, so you're becoming cute again. <laughs> um, that's called Zingo. Zingo, bingo with a Z. <laughs> oh boy, uh, it's um. I th- I am a big proponent of of board games for kids. I think that uh, it's a great way to you know spend quality time and they actually learn something and use their brains. And you know I, I'm a proponent of that stuff, so that's cool. Oh, I'm looking it up on Amazon right now. You are actually they say bingo with a zing. Like this is not something you made up. <laughs> oh no, yeah, of course. <laughs> no, Christian's not that clever. <laughs> it, hey, uh, it has a two and a half, uh, a five point four on Board Game Geek. So that's not bad for a. Trashy 5.4 kids out of 10. Three-year-old game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. right. For Board Game Geek, that actually isn't bad. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm being sincere. And yes, of course, that, that, is, their mar- it's, that is their marketing slogan. Uh, <laughs> By the way, uh, since you bring up Board Game Geek and ratings, uh, for, I don't know, probably, I want to say 10 years, but it probably hasn't been that long, six, seven years, uh, one game has been the top of the Board Game Geek rankings, and that game is uh, Twilight Struggle. It's a two-player game about the Cold War in the 80s. Um, that has been atop the rankings at Board Game Geek and has held fast there. And th- this is a site that takes its ratings very, very seriously. It's all user-generated. And uh, there was some talk as to whether it would ever be toppled. Well, just a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago now, uh, a game toppled it, and that game is Pandemic Legacy. So, oh, c- congratulations man. to friend of the show Rob Davio. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> for that, uh, that's pretty pretty big deal. Um, so, but I- sorry, last thing. Yeah. So the reviews. The, the, this just cracks me up. A great bingo variant that is made for kids too. I really hate this game. My kids keep making me play it over and over again, and I regret <laughs> having ever purchased it. Two point five. <laughs> That that should be a ten. What what thirty five year old like forty year old twenty eight year old person is like, and this will be the game. <laughs> like, of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> Sorry, go. Ahead. I already just ordered it. By the way, I literally <laughs> ordered it. It's on the way. I did the one click ordering. It's coming. Yeah, they'll love it. I mean, you'll hate it, but she'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll hate it. Perfect. <laughs> like so many other things. Yeah. Christian Spicer just got a box quote. You'll hate it. <laughs> um. So I want to talk a little bit about Time Stories, which was uh, I, I can't speak higher uh, about. In fact, uh, Sean, you would love Time Stories. It, it's very much a uh, an old school adventure game, but played on a tabletop. Uh, it's a game you play through once because it, it you are doing puzzles and you are finding out story reveals and there are spoilers to be had. I mean, it is a lot of people actually criticize it because it's a one playthrough game. But they have these different modules, and I played through the second module. So the game comes with one uh, called the Asylum, and that one. You, you, the idea of the game is you are time travelers from the future, and you have to go back quantum leap style, leaping into the bodies of people in the past and figuring out what quantum anomaly is going on and fixing that. 
and then you jump back. And if you don't succeed the first time around, you have a certain amount of time units that you spend doing different actions. If you use up all your time units before you have figured out what's going on and solved the puzzle, uh, then you jump back to the future and have to start again. But you start again knowing more this time than you did the first time around. So you're actually armed with information from your previous attempt, which is pretty neat. Yeah, it's very it's the best game I played all year, and that's with Pandemic Legacy, even though Pandemic Legacy is just below it. But I had a chance to try the second module, which is called the Marcy Case. And the thing that struck me is how different this module is than the first and how much room there is to make these modules really feel different than the ones before them, have a lot of different mechanics that you're using that you've never used before. This one is much more combat heavy than the Asylum was. Uh, You're jumping back to 1992 and you have to find this girl named Marcy, but there's a bunch of different girls that could be Marcy. So you have to figure out how to determine which one is the correct Marcy uh, and then save her. My only gripe, and I think a lot of people say this, is that the game, the premise of this module is very specific and it would be a really cool reveal if they played it like a reveal because they make no mention of what the premise is in the setup until you get to one point where it's like, you know, turn over this card. That's going to add a rule and it adds a rule and you, and adding that rule reveals what the whole thing is about. And it would be much cooler if you didn't know it until you actually jumped back in time and came to the first spot where that thing happens, but they screwed up that reveal. And it makes me so sad because um, it's kind of a cool reveal. It's very much a genre that you'll be familiar with if you've played any video games or board games. But uh, and so it's not particularly revolutionary that way. This this particular module, as far as uh, where it's set and what you're doing, but it does it really, really well. The art style is different from the first module. It's much more comic booky, and that works really, really well. And all the kinds of new mechanics that they introduced are so clever and so smart. It's not quite as puzzly as the asylum was, although the central thrust is figuring out which Marcy is the correct one, and that is a puzzle. But there's much more combat involved, but it's it's still such a fun experience, and we really, really loved playing it. So that's called Time Stories, T-period, I-period, M-period, E-period Stories, and this module is called The Marcy Case. Also just bought that, by the way. It's on the way. My wife has been texting me, stop listening to these guys <laughs> buying all this stuff. <laughs> well, you have to get – so you can't play The Marcy Case independent of the first game. So I hope yes, you didn't I buy just, it. No, I just bought the first game. Okay, yeah, cool. The, yeah, yeah, dude. Get three friends together, commit like three hours in a day, sit down and play it in one sitting. You don't have to play it in one sitting. It has a, um, it has like a cool little save game feature where you, how you put it back in the box will save your game. But I highly recommend you play it in one sitting. If you can like carve out three, four hours in a day with three friends, I guarantee you, you will have the most incredible experience. It's so fun. And it's really simple to, to understand how to play too. Very, very uh, elegant rules. But does it bingo with a Z? It doesn't add any zing to anything, but uh, that's no zing. Uh, All right, guys, we're going to wrap up this show. We do have our parting gift to give you, so stick around for that. But in the meantime, Sean Crankle, thank you so much for being here. Uh, This has been awesome, dude. What What a great guest. 
Thank you so much. Uh, I've had a total blast. You guys are awesome hosts. So thanks for making this painless and fun. And uh, yeah, now my wallet's got less money in it because of all your cool <laughs> recommendations. Way to go. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, well, maybe some people have less money in their wallets because they would want to buy your game. So why like don't it. you let people know where they can find out more about Oxenfree and uh, get ready for Friday's release? Yeah, so uh, if you head over to oxenfreegame.com, oxenfree, O-X-E-N-F-R-E-E, game.com, we have links pretty much to all the places you can get the game there. We'll be out on Xbox One, on Steam, and on Windows 10, as well as Mac uh, for Steam. So yeah, that stuff, awesome. And then if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at Nightschoolers, N-I-G-H-T-S-C-H-O-O-L-E-R-S. Very cool. Um Christian, I keep forgetting to say at the top of the show that we're going to be at PAX South. I should have said that at the very top of the show, and I didn't. But we're going to be at PAX South uh, yep. on on uh, Friday mm-hmm. at noon. We're going to be in the uh, what Falcon, Theater. Theater? Falcon Theater. Us, maybe some special guests. Yeah. Uh, live DLC in your I town have- if you live in that particular town. I have some fun stuff. We need to still power on it, but I have some fun ideas. And yes, we're going to be live back South Falcon theater, 12, 1230. One of those two, um, Friday, the 29th in San Antonio at PAX South is going to be awesome. Come by to that. We'll, we'll make it worth your while for sure. And if you're in San Antonio, I will be doing two sets at the blind lady tiger comedy club. Um, that night one set at 10 PM and is a paid show, I think. And then there's a free midnight showcase. I'll be doing a set there. And then if you're in Texas but not going to San Antonio, I will be doing a set at Sure Thing Saturday night, January 30th in Austin, Texas. It's one of the best best shows in Austin, period. I will be at Sure Thing. And then the next weekend after that, I will be in North Carolina in Chapel Hill at the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival. And if you're in L.A., January 24th is the last improv versus stand-up at UCB Franklin. We have Heather and Miles. They are the UCB cage match champs. Um, longest running champions of cage match ever. And they also were the first improv team ever on um, improv versus standup. So we're taking it home with them as well. And so hopefully if you're in town, that is January 24th here in LA. I'm on Twitter at Spicer. I just co-opted that and finished my plugs, Jeff. That was good. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm at Jeff Canada on, on the Twitters. You can always follow me. Uh, spelled with two N's and one T. And you can also check out my other shows, We Have Concerns, at wehaveconcerns.com, the Slash Filmcast at slashfilmcast.com, and Tomorrow Daily, where we did live uh, CES coverage last week. If you want to check some of that stuff out, really had some fun guests on, including Nick Cannon and I Justine and some other folks. It was really wild. Uh, and, and we had a dog. We had a dog as a guest. So a uh, dog's was name was Princess. So check those out. Uh, that's at uh, tomorrowdaily.com. Um, and uh, yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, let's get right now and give you your parting gift. Hey, give us a suggestion. Sean, you have a suggestion for people that might not be a video game to get them through their week? Yeah, man. Uh, I listen to lots of music all the time. Like I'm constantly burning through tons of music. And so this recommendation might be different tomorrow or the next day. But today, because the last, I don't know, three or four days I've been listening to this album on repeat. Uh, I don't know if we have any hip hop fans, but Pusha T, do you guys know who Pusha T is? 
Sadly, no, I do crickets, not. Just crickets. Yes. Okay, no, no, good. I, yeah, aware, yeah, I like it. If this becomes okay. a quiz, I drop off very soon. <laughs> no, so I did, you know, he's been around for years. I had not been a huge fan. He was in a few different groups before, or in another group before this. Um, but he's had a couple of solo albums, and he put something out. Um, this album is called Darkest Before Dawn, and it's just so bleak and icy and... Um, sharp and witty and it's so so good like it is the best wake up drive to work and deal with your day music and he's just like this crazy hustler and the people who made the beats on it are like you know there's q-tip and timbaland and uh you know just a huge variety kanye west like all these people that are super talented uh beat makers so yeah from a music front i would say that uh from a movie front what did i just watch that i was gonna say now it's escaped me so, yeah, couldn't have been that good. Let's just stick with Pusha T. <laughs> well, you got some definite support from the chat room. SR7 is freaking out that you brought him up. So that's Oh, cool. nice. <laughs> um, Christian, how about you? Got a parting gift? This one will be, uh, of course, why are you saying this now? You're so late to the party. And I am. But Spider-Gwen is great. Um, oh, yeah. I had them for a while, the first few issues, and then just never sat down to read them. But I, I sat down to read them over the weekend and... Um, you know, it's the whole other universe. It was weirdness, but uh, the writing, the art, everything, Spider-Gwen is a great Marvel book that if you haven't checked it out, maybe give it a shot. It's a concept that should not work, but it does. But it does, exactly, yeah. Um, I would like to recommend something else that I'm late to the party, too. Uh, it's an HBO show called Togetherness. Um, boy, it was it fun. I'm watching it on the, uh, the HBO Go app now, and uh, I think it lends itself to binge-watching. It's uh, the Duplass brothers, Mark Duplass, and what's his name? The other one, Ray? The famous one and the, the behind the camera one. Yeah. The other one. Uh, and the famous <laughs> one's in front of the camera, Mark. Uh, he, uh, they pl- it plays a, a dad, a young dad in, in L.A. Uh, whose best friend is a sort of schlubby actor who's uh, you know on the verge of, of quitting, and Amanda Peet is his his sister-in-law and uh, it's sort of just their family dynamic and these are just fun people uh who you kind of root for and get into embarrassing situations and awkward situations but not in an over-the-top way it's not curb your enthusiasm or anything like that it's just very real and very grounded in that duplass brothers way and um i just found it enjoyable and um i highly recommend it wife and i are powering through those so uh that's called togetherness it's on hbo cool all right, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Uh, thanks to Sean Crackle and Christian Spicer. Thanks to uh, our awesome bumper designer, Sean Madigan and Maggie Ball and folks at 5x5. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with more DLC. Until that time, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. <laughs>